Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levero Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 369, my guest is Daniel Frumkin from Brains, and we're talking about calculating Bitcoin mining profitability. So we talk about a range of things, Brains Insight Dashboard, which you should be using and checking out to understand the mining space. And we talk about the profitability calculator, the cost to mine calculator, CapEx or OpEx costs for mining and how to think about mining ROI, as well as up updates coming and I'm sure you will enjoy and learn from this episode. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin and I'm working as part of the team with Swan Private. Swan Private is specifically for high net worth investors and companies, entities who are looking to buy Bitcoin and these are people and entities who want some additional guidance. They want to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody and get some help and in fact earlier today I was teaching a Swan Private customer how to withdraw to their hardware wallet so this is all part of the guidance that Swan Private customers will receive. So so if this sounds like something interesting for yourself, go to swanprivate.com and fill out the form and we'll get in touch with you. This podcast is also brought to you by Brains. They are a Bitcoin mining company through and through. They are working on various projects and you will be interested in Brains OS Plus. This is firmware that you can install on your ASIC mining machine and it will give you more sats for your electricity. So make sure you are looking into the website to see which models are supported. They've got some Bitmain models available there and what's minor models will be up soon. With Brains OS Plus, you can install this firmware and you are optimizing your performance so make sure you check it out and if you use brains os plus and point your hash rate towards slush pool you also receive zero percent pool fee so that's another added benefit that you can get out of that so that website is brains.com that's brains with two eyes Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can anonymously borrow stablecoins against your Bitcoin. With Lend at HodlHodl, you don't have to sell your Bitcoin if you need to get some liquidity. You can borrow some stablecoins instead. So by doing this, you're putting up Bitcoin in an over-collateralized loan and you still hold one key out of three in this deal. At Lend at HodlHodl, all deals happen directly between users. So you go to the website and you select the offer. You can set the terms or accept the terms based on the offers that are up there, depending on how long you want to borrow and the interest rate you're looking to pay. So go and check it out at lent.hodlhodl.com. On to the show with Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for having me. So Daniel, you're over at Brains and uh, I wanted to chat with you about obviously mining and some of the insights that uh, Brains are sharing and there's uh, obviously this really cool insights dashboard that I want to chat about with you. But do you want to just give us a bit of a background on yourself, how you got into the world of Bitcoin mining? Sure. So um, I got into Bitcoin originally in 2016 and I was finishing up my uh, university studies at that time. And I realized I was much more passionate about Bitcoin than what I was studying and pretty much anything else I was doing with my life. So I ended up pretty much getting my degree and then shortly after deciding not to use it and to go travel the world and just like try to figure out a way to make money uh, location independently. So make money online. And the way that I figured out how to do that was to start doing copywriting and technical writing. Uh, So I was a a freelance copywriter and technical writer in 2017. Thanks to the bull market, there was a ton of work in the crypto industry. So I got to start writing about Bitcoin, but also unfortunately quite a lot of shit coins. It was a really cool way to make a living. I was traveling the world and working online. By 2018, especially late 2018, it was starting to wear on me that 
like I'm working on things that I don't believe in and I wanted to be working on Bitcoin. I, I did experiment with all like I had Ethereum and, and a bunch of other stuff and like 2018 showed me the, the light, so to speak. So in 2019, I was kind of in that place early 2019. And I just happened to move to Prague because I had a friend moving there and I was like hopping around and thought, why not? And I was on the Prague subreddit. Somebody posted about like cryptocurrency meetups. I responded to it. Hey, um, I work in the cryptocurrency industry full time. I just moved to Prague, don't know anything, but I'm down to go grab beers with anybody. Somebody else responded to that. What do you do for work full time in the crypto industry? I posted a couple author profiles. Uh, and then somebody from Brains DM'd me on Reddit and said, like, hey, we're looking for a technical writer. We, we're a Bitcoin mining company. And then I looked up Brains and I was like, oh, Slushpool. I've seen them on the hash rate distribution charts for forever. And then I like, looked into it more and I thought, oh, this is, this is really, really cool. Like, yeah, I'm going to go in and interview with these guys. Uh, so I went to the office and yeah, the rest is history, I guess. It's been a little over three years now since I started at Brains and it's pretty much the dream job for me. Really enjoy it. Fantastic. And uh, definitely I keep up to date on what's happening with the Brains blog and the Insights dashboard. And so uh, that was partly why I wanted to get in touch with you and chat about it, because I think it'll be interesting for listeners to just hear some analysis and insights around that. And so uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about this Insights dashboard and how it came about? Yeah, for sure. So um, 2019, when I started with Brains, I was just doing technical documentation, but uh, it only took a couple of months for me to end up like diverting most of my time to marketing. And so I, I quickly became kind of the director of content. And so around the halving in 2020, I was producing a bunch of content for the Brains blog and Twitter and whatnot. And I was using like btc.com, and just a, a whole bunch of sites that I didn't want to put our competitors in, in my content. Um, miningpoolstats.stream, Clark Moody dashboard, which I don't mind actually using, but it was just like, I'm, I'm using all kinds of external resources for content. And I love the brain's design language. I love all the, like our websites and user interfaces and everything. So I, I started thinking like, why don't we, do this ourselves. It couldn't be that hard. And we were pretty lean at the time. Uh, having is a tough time for mining companies. So, uh, we weren't like eagerly hiring a bunch of developers that I could just say, Hey guys, give me a developer and let's do this thing. But I did get approval to at least like build a proof of concept and see if, if it caught on. Uh, so I had a profitability calculator idea that was basically, I had Excel spreadsheets and I thought it would be cool to have visualizations for this because I change one number in one cell and, and the Bitcoin mind changes, the profit changes, everything changes. And it's, it's really cool to see that in a spreadsheet, but numbers changing is a lot different from having a chart where you can kind of see the real, real time impact of different decisions you might make. So the, the first part of it was just like, let me put this Excel sheet into a chart where people can visualize it and they don't need to necessarily understand all the formulas going on behind it. And then there was also around that time we were launching the first version of Brains OS Plus to do auto tuning on AmpMiner S9s. And we were saying that, oh, we can actually 
bring the efficiency of these S9s from like 88 joules per terahash down to 70, 75, which completely changes the economics of whether or not you can run them at different electricity prices. Um, so uh, Jan and Tomas, Jan being the, the lead developer on BrainsOS Plus and Tomas is our head of product, uh, they built this cool little cost to mine one BTC chart in Tableau and uh, you could just like change the efficiency of the miner and see your break-even electricity price change, see uh, how much Bitcoin you mine change and all that stuff. So then I thought, okay, this one is really cool too. Let's just put these two tools online as a proof of concept and, and let's see if anybody uses it. Um, so that was the, the first iteration and due to the, uh, the difficulties of the having and whatnot, I ended up being the backend developer on that myself and I don't know how to code. So that was very time consuming, slow and difficult process. Uh, and then we hired a freelancer to do the front end and that turned into a mess. Um, and basically like the first year or so of the project was just a slow, difficult learning process for me on working with developers and doing development work. Gotcha. But then we got a couple of part-time backend devs who I had known from previous projects and uh, switched the front end to internal developers. And since then, it's been awesome. And like most of the stuff yeah. that we have online now is is from that. So yeah, it's been it's been really cool the last few months in particular working with those guys because we're building stuff at a better rate. Yeah, for sure. I, I find it interesting just in terms of keeping an, obviously just keeping an eye on the industry, right? Just to see, okay, this is kind of where things are at. This is the hash rate. Here are some of the interesting statistics. And I think probably what will be most educational for listeners is actually to talk through some of those statistics. What is it? How is it estimated? What does it mean for the network? So maybe you want to just tell us about some of the key stats. Uh, maybe if you could just tell us, obviously the headline, if there's one statistic you want to know about the Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin network, it's it's the hash rate. So could you tell us a little right. bit about that in terms of how is that estimated um, and where is that sitting today? Yeah, for sure. So we have two two stats for hash rate on the top of the dashboard on Mining Insights. One is the current hash rate, and then the other one is a 30-day average, uh, moving average. So both of those are estimated based on the block times and the network difficulty during the given time period. The current one right now, we estimate it based on one-day block times, so it actually has huge variations. And that's... That can be just a matter of luck. So basically, whether or not there's actually that amount of hash rate, we don't know because probabilistically, sometimes miners will find blocks faster even if they don't have more hash rate and sometimes it'll be slower, uh, which is the same reason that with mining pools don't always find blocks. Like, for example, you, you might have 5% market share as a mining pool and still go 16, 18, 20 hours without finding a block sometimes. And that's just because... Uh, because that's how the math works. Like there's a low probability of that happening, but uh, if enough time passes, those low low probabilities eventually come to fruition. So yeah, we we measure the hash rate based on with the current network difficulty, are we finding blocks faster than 10 minutes on average or slower than 10 minutes on average? Uh, and if it's faster, then that means like the hash rate has gone up based uh, relative to where it was in the previous difficulty at epoch. And if it's slower, then the hash rate has gone down. And the difference between that, the actual average block time and the 10-minute expected block time 
is how we can estimate what the hash rate actually is. Um, but at the end of the day, all of those hash rate estimates, regardless of the time period, it is just an estimate um, because there's no way to account for that, that luck and the probabilities. Uh, so one of the cool metrics that we don't have yet, but we will in the future that I'm really excited for is that we're going to have a real-time hash rate estimate, which aggregates the reported hash rates of all the different mining pools. And then if a mining pool is not reporting their hash rate via an API, um, then we will just use the estimate based on their block times. So that will enable us to have a third way of measuring hash rate, which should be more precise than the other two, but does require us to trust that the mining pools are reporting their hash rate accurately. Right. And maybe they have an incentive to over-report to say, look how big we are or how many people are using us. Um, But anyway, that aside, I think the interesting one, at least as I've seen, and maybe you have something to share as well, is sometimes in Bitcoin's history, there have been more mainstream news sites or you know, these propagandist kind of sites who basically say, oh, look how big the drop in the hash rate was when really it was like they were operating off a bad estimate, basically. Like, and the short version of it was that they were operating, they were looking at some website that was just doing a really bad estimate and not looking at a long enough period of time to actually get a good estimate of whether Bitcoin's hash rate had fallen and by how much or whether it had risen and by how much. Is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, exactly. That's I think like everything in the mining industry, when whenever non-mining entities try to like analyze this stuff, if they don't actually work with miners or work in the mining industry, there's always stuff that's wrong about it. So uh, that was another one of the reasons that I wanted to build this ourselves is that I think we have a really good understanding of it and we can help share that with people. Uh, so having different metrics for hash rate but also, eventually, I'm working on now a methodology page where we can explain all of this stuff. I think that will help clear up a lot of those misconceptions. And then uh, whenever that stuff gets uh, circulating around on Twitter or wherever, we can post like, okay, here's, the, here's our estimate and this is how we came to it. So like, let's see why there's such a big discrepancy here. Right. So you can provide a more robust estimate given by actual technical experts in the field, as opposed to sometimes when a journalist is kind of looking at, you know, and then maybe they're not a Bitcoin specialist and they're just kind of picking off a number from some random website they saw and it it kind of paints things in an inaccurate light. And I think the other interesting thing is just as, as we're speaking today, right, this is April 2022, the hash rate is something in that range of 200 to 207 exahash. And we are, I mean, just broadly where things have been after the last, the events of the last year or so, where we've seen this huge drop and then rise back up again in terms of Bitcoin's security as a network, right? Yep. And um, when I was in Miami, I talked to some guys from Bitmain who were saying that they think still 30% or more of the hash rate is located in China, uh, which I don't agree with that. But we know for sure there is still... A good amount of mining going on in China. But I think the real story of the, the hash rate recovery is probably these very large North American miners scaling up very rapidly, particularly the, the public miners, Core Scientific, um, Riot Blockchain, Marathon, etc., BitFarms, like all these mining companies are like adding exahashes uh, every quarter. So it's been a really impressive recovery, but if you were looking at the PRs, the, the press releases that those companies were putting out you know, a year ago or even 18 months ago, it's not 
all that surprising because they were putting in massive, massive machine orders back then. And now we're just starting to see a lot of those machines coming online. Yeah. And so I'm also curious as well, do you see it like the large miners are maybe less... I guess that maybe they're more amenable to say state capture, and we've seen this argument, right? Like that, I'll see the small miners are going to be more able to sort of support the true values of Bitcoin censorship resistance. But maybe on the other hand, you could sort of argue, well, okay, but at least they're helping raise the sort of amount of hash rate, and in many different countries around the world, so it's kind of decentralized in that way. So I'm curious if you have any insight or anything you'd want to elaborate on there. Yeah, for sure. I do worry about having large miners and particularly uh, public mining companies controlling too much of the hash rate. I think there's pros and cons to it. The the obvious pro is that uh, some of those companies are investing in lobbying in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, uh, which which can ultimately help out everybody uh, if they educate Congress and educate uh, other legislatures around the world about what Bitcoin mining is and the benefits of it and job creation and economic stability and for energy grids and all the different things uh, that Bitcoin mining can bring. I think that those public mining companies are the best entities to do that. But I also do definitely worry about yeah the flip side of that being regulatory capture. Uh, and for that reason, I've spent or that's one of the reasons I've spent a good amount of time in South America recently trying to learn about the different mining that's going on here. There's obviously a huge mining community in Venezuela. Uh, there's a lot of mining going on in Mexico. There's a lot of mining going on in Paraguay. And um, Paraguay in particular, I think, can be a really good hotspot for mining in the future because uh, how much hydropower they have. And um, basically, there's a the second largest hydro dam in the world uh, called Itaipu Dam in Paraguay uh, is it's about 14 gigawatts and Paraguay owns half of that and currently they sell almost all of it back to Brazil because the Paraguayan population isn't that big and and there's nothing else they can really do with it uh, so when I've visited Paraguay in the last few months I've talked to people actually who work with the, the energy companies there about like keep a little bit more of that energy in Paraguay, uh, sell it to Bitcoin miners, and then they can work with you on demand response programs so that you can ensure that your citizens are never facing energy blackouts. And at the same time, you're keeping more of the economic value of that energy within your country instead of selling it to Brazil for pennies on the dollar. The, the thing that's always kept me optimistic about the future of Bitcoin mining and, and it being decentralized is that ultimately very cheap energy is distributed across the world. It's like the energy, the waste natural gas that's being vented and flared. There's a ton of that in the US, but there's also a ton of it in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, in Russia, etc. Obviously, um, there's still mining going on in China, but if China were to actually make it legal again, in the future, which I don't think is totally out of the question, then we have some real competition between U.S. miners and Chinese miners, which I think would be great for the network. And then there's a lot of energy abundance in uh, Scandinavia in particular, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, around there, Canada, and yeah, all over South America. So I'm definitely keeping a close eye on it. 
I don't want to see the the market share of public mining companies get you know greater than fifty percent of the total network, and and it is definitely trending in that direction. But for now, I see a lot of reasons to be optimistic about decentralization. And then another point there is that we're working on Strata V2, or actually we kind of handed that off to some independent devs that are funded by Spiral, Harmony Square Crypto. And that's making some nice progress recently. So if we can get Stratum V2 implemented on multiple mining pools, and particularly the North American ones that are more likely to face that regulation uh, and get North American mining entities using it as well and constructing their own block templates, which isn't currently possible, but eventually will be once that is merged into Bitcoin Core, uh, then I, I think we're, we're in a good spot. Yeah. And just for listeners who aren't as familiar, could you just give a bit of a high level for them? What are some of the key benefits there for Stratum V2 if we were to be able to get more mining pools uh, and people on board with Stratum V2? Yeah. The the main benefits for um, miners without considering the decentralization aspect, one, there's encrypted communication channels between the mining, miners and the mining pools. So the way it works right now with Stratum V1, the original Stratum protocol, Miners and mining pools are sending back and forth JSON human readable data packets. And for example, your internet service provider can see what those data transfers contain. Um, an eavesdropper who just gets into your network can see what those data packets contain. And not only can they see it, but if somebody is really sophisticated and understands what it is, then they can actually steal some of that hash rate without you even knowing it because they would just change the pool account to their own. And the pool has no way of knowing that that's happened because as far as the pool can see, we're just sending payouts to the to the account that mined all of those shares. And as far as the miner can see, they're just submitting all of their shares to the pool. But because there there can be that intermediary that nobody knows about in those that interjects in those communication channels, that's a really serious security risk for miners. And Shroudum V2 fixes that by having encryption on the communication channels. Uh, and then, of course, the encryption adds some some weight to the data transfers. It makes them larger. But the nice thing with Shroudum V2 as well is that the data transfers are no longer JSON format. They're, they're switched to binary, which is significantly lighter. So even though you're adding encryption and that makes it heavier, the data transfers themselves are still about 50% wider compared to Stratum V1 because of that switch from JSON to binary. Uh, so data transfer efficiency improves, uh, which would be significant in the case of, well, latency at all, but um, particularly for miners that maybe don't have quite as stable or, or as fast of internet connections. I get, those are the two biggest benefits in terms of like the performance aspects of mining. The part that, that doesn't exist quite yet or isn't uh, merged into Bitcoin Core quite yet and it's being developed right now is the block template proposals. So what that basically is, is right now mining pools are the ones that are determining which transactions go into the blocks. So they're running the full nodes and they're constructing the block templates and they send those block templates to the miners. The miners hash them and send them back as shares to the mining pools. And what Stratum V2 will ultimately enable is for the miners themselves to run full nodes to determine which transactions go into the blocks that they hash and then submitting those same shares to the mining pools without, uh, without disrupting the economics of the pool model at all because they're still going to be paid 
the same way as they were before. Yeah, right. And that's interesting because there's so many different complicated aspects of it, right? Because why do people use the pools? It's it's to smooth out that variation so that a small miner can not be sitting there waiting for, you know, 20 years to find a block, right? Because they want to be part of the pool. But then because they want to be part of the pool, they're at currently at the whim of the pool in terms of censorship. And I guess that's where some of that argument is that could let's say hypothetically, if censorship were to be a regulation came down to say, no, you must blacklist or whitelist certain coins, etc., then this would represent a way that miners could sort of reject that in a way because they are forming their own template. And I guess that's, that's kind of the key argument. Although to be fair, even today, um, the argument is also that miners can simply switch pools, right? So if there's one pool that's doing censoring, we can, you know, they can it's not costless to do this, right? There is some some work required, but they can switch pool to one that's not censoring, right? And yeah. to your point earlier, you were saying as well, is that because there are many different places on earth that have cheap electricity, it's an incentive there to go and set up Bitcoin mining there. And there's different jurisdictions on the earth and it's kind of harder to try to make this argument that somehow you're going to create a successful censoring cartel across all these different countries and different jurisdictions, all of which with different rules. Some of these countries are fighting each other. Why would they coordinate and collaborate on what the blacklist or the whitelist should be to censor? And can you even make a coherent, like singular blacklist or whitelist globally? I mean, that even that is not really a, an easy, it's not a trivial thing to do. So yeah, but it, it's just interesting as well to see kind of these different dynamics play out uh, and see where the Bitcoin mining ecosystem is going. Because arguably, if you if we looked years ago, people would say, oh, look how much hash rate is in China. Now that, that criticism is not is no longer as yeah. much of a criticism now. Yeah, now I want more hash rate back in China. Now I, I wanna I wanna see that competition between the US and China grow because that would be great for decentralization because like you said, China and the US are are never gonna agree on, hey, let's coordinate to to stop these OFAC addresses from sending their coins anywhere. Never going to happen. So if we see hash rate growing, yeah, anytime we see it growing in, in competing jurisdictions, that's that's really good for Bitcoin. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, so from the perspective of somebody who's looking at this industry and they're thinking, okay, I, maybe I want to start mining myself, and they're trying to learn a little bit, one or well, some interesting statistics that we can talk about, we've got here hash value. So that's uh, Satoshi's per terahash per day. So could you tell us what is hash value? Yeah, that's it's basically it's just a revenue, a tool for analyzing the revenue that you'll produce from mining. Uh, so we don't factor in things like electricity price or anything like that yet. There's no OPEX yet. It's just pure. This is how much Bitcoin you will mine per terahash of hash rate that you have per day. So if you if you're looking at purchasing uh, Antminer S9 and you want to know like how many sats can I mine with this, then you would look at the hash value and multiply that by the terahash that you would get from your S9. If you're running Grains OS Plus, hopefully it's like 15 or 16 terahash per second, and then that tells you your sats per day, and that should give you an idea at least of whether or not it makes sense to even purchase that machine based on how many sats that machine costs. 
Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about Bitcoin security and upgrading to multi-signature? With Unchained Capital, you can do this easily with collaborative custody. With Bitcoin security, you want to remove single point of failure. And this can obviously be a custodian. It could even be your single signature hardware wallet if you have not correctly got backups or thought about if that backup were to be compromised. So with Unchained Capital, you can create a multi-signature vault and you can have two keys held in different locations and unchained can be the third key so if you've never done this before they've got a concierge onboarding program which you can make use of to pay up front they'll send you some hardware wallets they'll do a call with you get you set up and then set you up with your vault and deposit a thousand dollars of bitcoin there so go to unchained.com select the concierge onboarding program and use the code lavera to upgrade your security and when it comes to Bitcoin hardware security, my favorite is the cold card available at coinkite.com. The cold card comes in a little calculator sized device and there's a new version coming out, the MK4 with upgraded processor, two secure elements and NFC support coming. So there's all kinds of features. Coldcard and the CoinKite team have been innovators in the space. They were first to be PSBT native. They have single signature and multi-signature support. You can use it easily with wallets like Sparrow Wallet, and you can do all kinds of advanced features like have an address explorer to see the addresses that your Coldcard can access or the private keys on your device can access. So go to CoinKite.com and order your Coldcard and the associated gear there. Now back to the show. Fantastic. Yeah. So it can inform our decision around what miners we buy, how much, you know, how many we're buying. And then also interesting is the hash price statistic. So what's hash price? Yeah, this one gets people confused a lot because price sounds like you're paying for something, not that you're earning something. Um, but this is also, it's just hash value multiplied by the current Bitcoin price. So it's actually another statistic for revenue but in fiat terms, um, and we use dollars, you could do hash price in any fiat currency if you multiply the hash value by whatever the Bitcoin price is in that fiat currency. But the, the thing that people often get it confused with is dollars per terahash, as opposed to dollars per terahash per second per day. And the dollars per terahash is, well, we're referring to it as rig price, and that's the dollars that you spend per terahash of compute power when you're purchasing a machine. So if you're buying a machine that has 100 terahash and you're spending uh, $1,000, then you would be spending $10 per terahash to purchase that machine. And that's, that's your capex. So that's why hash price is really, really often confusing for people because, and I understand it, it, it kind of makes more sense to, for something with the name price in it to be referring to a cost as opposed to a revenue. But that's how it was uh, set up. So harder to change it now than than to come up with something new so right right and also on the dashboard you've got here fees as a percentage of block reward so you know as we speak today that's about one percent what are your thoughts on where that number is today do you believe that number has to rise over time or it's not a big deal i'm i'm not particularly concerned about it right now it's definitely not nice to look at that chart and see you know, there were times where it was 5% or 10% of the total block reward. And that looks like, a okay, we're, we're moving in the right direction for mining to be sustainable 10 or 20 years from now for transaction fees to be a larger and larger portion of mining revenue. And uh, ever since, I think it was really 
uh, when blockchain.com started using SegWit and then the size of their transactions went down. But it could have been many other factors. But ever since around last summer, it's been between like 0.5 and 1.5% for the most part. And that would be concerning to me if it continues through a bull market. But as far as like right now, I'm not too concerned about it just because it's been pretty much a bear market during that time, more like sideways. But um, the mainstream is not interested in Bitcoin right now and hasn't been since 60K and since Elon was talking about it and whatnot. So we typically see transaction fees rise and transaction volumes rise a lot during bull markets when uh, retail investors are getting more involved and starting to use it. And so if we don't see that happen in the next bullish part of the cycle, whenever that is, then I would start to be a little bit more concerned about it. But even so, you know, daily mining revenue for, um, for miners right now is upwards of $40 million per day. Uh, maybe a little lower than that, but it's been consistently above 40 million per day for the last six months to a year. And, uh, I think that that's enough to incentivize adequate security. Like I think I have much more hash rate than we need right now. Uh, and that's something that people need to consider as well as like transaction fees becoming a larger part of the block reward overall is important super long term. Um, but how much of the block subsidy right now is, is funding hash rate that we don't actually need? How much of it is funding hash rate that like, yes, it, it's disincentivizing anybody from even thinking about attempting a 51% attack. So in some sense, the more the better. But I think if we had 150x a hash right now instead of 200 or 207, uh, I wouldn't be overly concerned about having a 51% attack still. I think that would be adequate level of security. So that's, that's how I'm looking at it long term. Like for now, yeah. no, no reason to worry. But let's see in a few years or even in the next part of the, the bull cycle, like what happens with fees then. Yeah, right. And it, it also... As the price rises, which we're still in an early phase of Bitcoin, right? So price is, is going to rise and that is also going to drive up the mining revenue number. Now, okay, maybe the argument could be longer, longer term. Maybe, uh, you know, it's not just going to like keep doubling every four years forever. I mean, who knows, right? But it also, I mean, my friend Pierre Richard has also made the argument that he believes it's actually more about the function of the uh, mining and of the block reward and block subsidy particularly is more about distribution as opposed to the security aspect of it and so he's kind of almost got like a different argument as well where he's saying no it's actually better that it's like low fees you know that we should be it's it's show it's a sign of scalability and that it's accessible and that you know it, it kind of all these arguments it, it actually there are actually kind of good arguments either side there so we'll, we'll have to just sort of see where that goes uh but um I'd also like to talk a little bit about your Bitcoin mining profitability calculator because um, I think this one is probably going to be the, a very relevant one for anyone who is thinking about getting into Bitcoin mining. So can you tell us a little bit about this calculator and how to use it? Yeah, um, it does It does scare some people when they first look at it. Uh, there's a lot of inputs. The reason that I built it in the first place is because before this existed, I think the only way to really calculate mining projections, economic projections in a realistic way long term 
was with an Excel sheet because most of the mining profitability calculators out there don't have things like increasing Bitcoin price or decreasing Bitcoin price over time, increasing or decreasing the network difficulty over time, including the upfront cost of your machine, uh, including the residual value of your, your machine or machines over time. So your hardware inventory, all those different factors. So I wanted to make this calculator as well, include as many different inputs that are actually important as possible so that, um, yeah, it's going to be a little bit harder to understand, but once you do understand it, it will be a lot more useful. Uh, so we have things there. I could just go through the inputs, um, and, and talk about how, how I think about setting them and different things. Sure. Um, so we have like obviously Bitcoin price and network difficulty are, uh, that's what determines the fiat revenue of of your mining operation. Uh, your hash rate and power consumption determines how much you mine and how much you spend on electricity. And then your electricity price is, uh, that's going to be the biggest portion of your operating expenses, your OPEX. And then we have inputs for the block subsidy and the pool fee. The block subsidy, obviously, just 6.25 BTC right now. That's the portion of the total block reward, which is new coin issuance. And we have it built such that if you do a three or four year time analysis, for example, you'll see the halving automatically cut that block su subsidy. Uh, and we calculate when that halving is supposed to occur based on 10 minute average block times and the current block height and the block height of the halving. So just building in realistic things like that so that you're not projecting your profitability four years out without accounting for the revenue getting cut in half suddenly there. The pool fee that's that's just an inherent part of mining now that if you want to have stable uh, income streams and you need to mine with a mining pool, uh, the typical mining pool fee is between like probably 1% to 3%, but larger miners can see uh, lower pool fees and potentially even as low as zero. Average transaction fees in BTC, that's the transaction fees per block, which adds to the mining revenue. So the, the second part of the block reward, you have the block subsidy of new coin issuance. And then the miners are also earning the transaction fees for all the transactions that they include in their blocks. Um, so you can estimate what that will be over the duration of your uh, your time analysis, the time that you analyze. Uh, I typically put like 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 BTC there because it's been low recently, like we were talking about. So I don't want to overestimate that and and make the picture too rosy. Other fees is a percentage on revenue. It's actually calculated right now the same way as the pool fee. It's just uh, taking out from the initial revenue. So some examples of other fees could be uh, dev fees on firmware like Brains OS Plus, um, maybe management and hosting fees that you pay to somebody if you're uh, hosting your miners with a third party. In a future update, I'm going to actually change that so that we have one fee which takes out from revenue and a separate fee which takes out from profit because we're seeing a much more common business model nowadays is that hosting providers will actually offer a lower electricity price to entice miners to, to put their machines with them, but they will also take a small profit share from what's left over 
of the Bitcoins after paying for the electricity. So that's something that I, I plan to add in the near future is, is other fees on profit as opposed to only on revenue as it is right now. And then the last two basic inputs are the difficulty increment and the price increment that I mentioned. And that just allows you to change the Bitcoin price and the Bitcoin network difficulty over time to more realistically analyze like what your profitability is going to be long term. Because, for example, the network difficulty since 2016 has increased by close to 100% per year. I think before the China mining ban, network difficulty was increasing by well over 100% per year. Uh, so that means that with your hash rate being constant, you would be mining half as much or even less BTC per day as you were when you initially started after a year has passed because of difficulty increasing. So if you don't factor in a difficulty increase and you're analyzing your profitability long term, then you're definitely going to overestimate how much Bitcoins you end up mining because it's just difficulty goes up over time. It's just not accurate. Yeah. yeah. And then price increment is is the same. Yeah. Uh, so if you had to give an average of like that difficulty increase per year, what kind of ballpark are we looking at just historically over the last you know couple of years in Bitcoin? Historically, I think it's probably just above 90% right now over the last, like in the modern mining era, which I would say started with that miner S9 in late 2016 or early 2017. So typically, I would tell people, if you want to do a conservative case, set difficulty increment to 100% per year. And then if your economics still look good with that 100% per year difficulty increment, then you can rest a little bit easier because um, although that has been close to the historical rate, uh, now that hash rate is so large and and like bringing new hash rate online requires massive, massive infrastructure projects. I don't see it continuing to grow at that rate or higher than 90 to 100% per year, meaning that I don't see the hash rate doubling every year uh, going forward the way that it has uh, in the past few years. But what I tell people is like more of a perhaps the realistic case, not the best case scenario, but something where, yeah, maybe this is the most likely to happen would be somewhere between like 65 to 75% per year. Uh, and that's based on like press releases from public mining companies, just a general understanding of how much hardware is being produced by the major hardware manufacturers and the rate at which infrastructure is being built and machines are being deployed. That seems like probably in that 70% per year range is going to be pretty realistic, at least for the next year or two. Excellent. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Because in the early years, there were so much fast technological development and now it's almost like we're starting to hit almost like certain bottlenecks that are slowing down that increase in the difficulty rate right like so uh, obviously the network is still growing very quickly but it's just like that percentage rate is coming down over time and it's similar even with price right like if you looked at let's say the price for the first whatever 10 years of bitcoin it might have been like 200% per year and now it's it's tapering down and maybe now the expectation might be more something like you know 60% per year or something like that instead of this crazy lofty 140% or 200%. Yeah, exactly. And because of that, like that's such a huge unknown. That's the, the part of mining that's both scary and exciting if, if you're investing a lot of money into it because like those two inputs 
drastically change the profitability of your potential mining operation. And we we really don't know. Like difficulty, we have a pretty good idea because at least for the next year or so, we, we kind of know how many machines have been bought. And we know that the, the average cost to mine one Bitcoin for miners today is probably pretty far below the actual Bitcoin price. So as long as price doesn't totally crash, then miners are going to keep bringing hash rate online, even if prices, let's say, sideways. But with price, it's really almost impossible still to say, you know, what is the Bitcoin price going to be a year from now or two years from now? So that's why I don't recommend like doing one of these profitability calculations and calling it good. I would recommend doing like, let's say four or five, one where you say, okay, difficulty is going to go up by 100% per year. But part of the reason for that is that price is going up by 50% per year. So this is a somewhat bearish case for mining economics because difficulty is going up faster than price, but it's still realistic because price is going up enough that miners will continue to close that gap between the their cost of production and the actual Bitcoin price. Um, but then let's also analyze one where Bitcoin price does really, really well. Let's say like Bitcoin price goes up 110% per year. And that's like your, your high upside case where even if difficulty goes up 70% per year, your fiat profitability is actually improving over time. Um, and then do the opposite. Do the one where like price maybe stays flat for an entire year, or maybe it only goes up 10% per year over three or four years, which is like pretty close to a worst case scenario, I think. And meanwhile, difficulty goes up, let's say 30 or 40% per year. How does your economics look then? Um, so that's what I recommend to people, like test out all those different scenarios, do bearish cases, bullish cases, sideways cases, and if your economics look good in most or all of those, then buy the machines and start mining. Right. And the other aspects of it are maybe even calculating in some probability about machine failure or even like, you know, your machine going offline or maybe let's say you're let's say you're setting up a facility or you're setting up an area to do it and, you know, you have a delay in how long it takes you to get that set up, right? So you have to kind of even put in a little bit of conservatism about those aspects of it too. But all those things considered, if you're careful and conservative about it and you accept that, okay, there's certain risks, it can still be quite profitable, right? And uh, I think it's um, just useful to think about those aspects of it, right? Have some different scenarios, think about what are some of the risks. And the risk is also, you know, if you're trying to get a lot of miners on, then it's also about can you make sure you've got enough rack space, right? Because sometimes that can be the bottleneck, right? Like there were times where, you know, even during this last year, especially with this whole China mining situation, from what I was hearing, it's that obviously there was a lot of mining ASIC machines out there available, like back at that time. But the rack space was the bottleneck. So that can be the other concern. You were hearing correctly, for sure. It was interesting, like during the halving and, and immediately following the halving, the, the big story was, oh, semiconductor chip shortages. There's going to be ASIC supply chain bottlenecks and nobody's going to be able to bring new hash rate online quickly enough. And that totally flipped after the China mining ban. And I think it's still the case today that the major bottleneck is on infrastructure and the supply chain issues are present in that case as well. Like there's supply chain issues with transformers, fuses, all kinds of different components that go into mining infrastructure that are hard to get a hold of right now. And especially for, mar for miners that are building 
multiple megawatts of infrastructure. It's not an easy thing to do. And you've got a lot of competition because, you know, everybody, all the miners around the world are trying to do the same thing. Everybody's trying to maintain their market share. So yeah, that, that infrastructure bottleneck is definitely something to consider. Yeah. And so let's just summarize a little bit of that. So maybe if we can put that into some scenarios, let's say you're a, you're a retail stacker, you, you're thinking about, hey, maybe I want to just do you know one or two ASICs at home. I'm just going to run some profitability there. So as an example, you might take this calculator, you might say, okay, I'm going to get you know two Bitmain machines or two Wattsminer machines or something and think about, okay, what's the hash rate going to be for those two machines? Okay, punch that in. Okay, what do I estimate the consumption is going to be based on, you know, those machines? And then, you know, crunch that in and then crunch your scenarios and then sort of pull together a number of, okay, do I believe this is going to be profitable? And also interesting, if you have any insights to share or elaborate around assessing your profitability, both in fiat terms and then also in Bitcoin terms. Yeah, that's uh, the next version of the calculator is going to really highlight doing it in Bitcoin terms because it is a much different calculation. And ultimately, I think a much bleaker calculation in the majority of cases. Uh, so what that what I'm talking about is if you invest, let's say, $500 into an Antminer S9, then you have a CapEx break-even period, which is the amount of time it takes you to mine basically $500 worth of Bitcoin or to mine $500 worth of profit after you pay for your electricity and other expenses. So that's where, okay, now I've mined enough, my profit has been enough to offset the initial cost of the hardware. If you do that in Bitcoin terms, it's a different calculation. So you you divide your hardware price by the, the Bitcoin price, and that tells you the amount of Bitcoin that you're spending on that hardware. And you can basically think of that as like, should I buy Bitcoin with this money or should I buy an ASIC with this money and then earn Bitcoin over time? So that's, that's how you set the CapEx in Bitcoin terms. And then the question becomes, how long does it take you to mine that same amount of Bitcoin as you could have just bought in the first place if you had bought Bitcoin rather than buying the ASIC? And that's your Bitcoin CapEx break even. And that's a, like, if you're a, a Bitcoiner, and you're long on Bitcoin, then that's the one that you should really care about. It should be, can I ever earn as much Bitcoin from mining as I could have just bought? And is that the case even after I pay for my electricity bills? One of the nice things, though, with being a home miner or a small-scale retail miner is you can, you can kind of manage your treasury however you want. You're not accountable to anybody besides yourself. So if you want to um, maybe... One of your incentives for mining, for example, might be that you want KYC free sats. You don't want to buy it from an exchange and sacrifice your privacy. You would rather mine it yourself, get it from a mining pool. And as long as you take proper measures to ensure your privacy there, then those coins are, are far more private than they would be if you bought them from an exchange. So maybe that's your, one of your main motivating factors to mine at home. And then you would say, okay, I'm just going to foot the bill for this fee electricity expenses out of my pocket with fiat, and I'm going to keep all of the Bitcoin. And um, that's another thing I'm adding to the calculator is there's one of the inputs now is called the HODL ratio, which is uh, the percentage of the profit which you keep in Bitcoin. So it's a really interesting exercise to change the HODL ratio if you have a non-zero price increment for BTC. So if 
the Bitcoin price is going up over time in your analysis and you're holding some portion of the Bitcoin, then that will drastically change your end profitability in fiat terms. So it's the, the, the next version of the calculator. I'm going to make it possible to do a HODL ratio on revenue, not just on profit, so that you can say, like, I'm going to pay for my electricity with fiat and I'm going to hold every single Satoshi that I mine, which I think is like what most home miners should be doing if they're mining at a relatively small scale and they can afford those electricity bills without selling, then like why mine in the first place if you want to sell, hold it all. Right. And so you might think of it like, hey, this is just my little non-KYC premium on one side. And two, you might also think of it like, hey, I, I'm contributing to that sort of uh, that ideological censorship resistance aspect of the network in a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling sense, let's yep. say. And I think there's another complicating, or maybe not just complicating, but opportunity potentially using fiat credit, right? Like you might actually be in a situation where you might not be able to get a fiat loan or fiat credit in order to buy Bitcoin. But if you're able to get a fiat credit loan in order to do some mining, then maybe that also changes your calculus too, because then it's kind of like you're not spending your own money. You're using the bank's money or some, you know, the lender's money to do this mining operation. Now, of course, there's risk. There's always a risk. But I think it could also change your decision because now you're just thinking more about the financing cost. And in fairness, this applies more for, let's say, the medium and the larger miners, but potentially even for a smaller miner, it might, it might be part of the calculation here, right? Yep. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, that's the most exciting part of the next update is we're actually going to build in the ability to do debt financing. And I think that that's something people should should think about when looking at these really large miners as they're scaling is that like being a, a public company, one of the biggest benefits of that is cheap access to capital. And that's what all of these public miners are doing, granted in different ways. Marathon's doing it by just buying as many machines as they can. Riot and BitFarms are doing it by also building out infrastructure and owning their their infrastructure as well. Core Scientific's doing it with both hosting and self-mining and buying a lot of the machines, but then selling that to selling a portion of them to hosting clients. So looking at all those different factors, it it really does make sense for these public miners. Although I guess I think Marathon did just raise money and use it to buy Bitcoin, but I think it's in the majority of cases, it's true that uh, most of these public miners are able to acquire Bitcoin much cheaper by mining it than they could by just purchasing it because it's harder to justify a loan for, let's say, $500 million if you're just going to use it to buy Bitcoin. You know, Michael Saylor's done it pretty well, but probably it would be difficult to replicate that business model. Whereas if you were to say like, hey, we have really cheap electricity, we're really good at building infrastructure, uh, we have good relationships with hardware manufacturers and other mining service providers, and we can do this really competitively long term. That's a, a easier value proposition to go to investors with. Yeah. And because I can appreciate where some Bitcoiners and some listeners are thinking, you know, we, we don't want it, we don't want the fiat system. But on the other hand, you can think of it also like this is almost like using the fiat system in a judo move exactly. against itself. So in exactly. some ways you could see it like you're leveraging this system that we think is unjust in some ways. Obviously, many of us Bitcoiners think Bitcoin is the answer. We want to we want to fix the money, fix the world, as as my friend Marty Bent says. And so, of course, 
with all of these things, you have to think about the risk of it because you could get liquidated. You might do take out a loan and something goes wrong with the mining operation and now you're sort of out in both ways. So obviously it's not risk-free, but for people who are able to play the fiat debt game well, they are able to do it in a way that they can stack more sats and sort of use the old system to build the new system. Yep. If you think Bitcoin is going to go up you know, 50 to 100% per year, even more, then it makes a whole lot of sense to take out a cheap loan and yeah, use it to mine. If you can't use it to just buy Bitcoin, then using it to mine is a great option. Yeah. So I think we are going to see more financialization and products and companies that are helping around this. And so it's just an interesting area. And it's just, there's just so many different areas. I mean, it's just like Bitcoin, right? There's all these different aspects to it right there's economics there's cryptography there's computer science there's networking there's you know all these different elements but even here we're thinking okay people might be thinking about okay accounting you know uh, hardware uh you know electricity costs uh, tax consequences like interest rates all these different elements that when combined can create a very interesting thing both from an ideological point of view and from a just a business and monetary point of view so really interesting stuff um i think one other topic I wanted to hit with you, um, I know we, we normally go about an hour, but last question. Um, one area that I've seen some discussion on Twitter, I've seen some people really fighting hard back and forth, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this because people are talking about cost to mine calculations, right? And what we see is sometimes people say, oh, is that that's not being accurate because cost to mine oftentimes is not counting not accounting for the hardware cost of buying that ASIC miner. It's kind of seen like, no, that's just the energy cost. And, the, you know, so, but I can also hear the other argument is, well, it's just like in accounting standards, they have certain metrics that are done from a comparability point of view, right? So as an example, EBITDA is done in a certain way. It's earnings before interest tax depreciation, et cetera, because people have different tax rates. So to make things comparable, you need EBITDA, right? So in a similar way, Maybe cost to mine is kind of like that. So what's your thought on that? Yeah, we've got something coming for that too. Um, glad you mentioned that as well. So the team at Galaxy Digital, the mining team there, put out a report and an Excel model. I'm not sure when it was probably, it might have been even in late 2021. And they had two different versions of the cost to mine one BTC calculation. One was marginal and one was total. And marginal was like, just subtract your OPEX uh, or like, it's just, it's your electricity price uh, and maybe your labor and, and other small factors like that. You subtract your pool fee and that gives you your cost to mine. But the total one was also including hardware depreciation. And I thought that those, having both of those is really important because hardware costs, at least for now, like hardware is not yet commoditized to the extent that you can not think about it. You have to consider the hardware costs as a really, really significant portion of your, like whether or not it makes sense to mine in the first place. So including depreciation of your hardware in your cost to mine gives you a much more realistic estimate of how much it's actually costing you. So we're going to have both of those. Those will be calculated from the profitability calculator and we're going to update our cost to mine one BTC tool eventually. Uh, I'm not sure when that's going to be, but that will include both marginal and total cost to mine. And I think either one of those in isolation is not nearly as good as having both of them because they both, like the the marginal cost to mine does still tell you, like, is my electricity price competitive? Like, what's my 
what's my break-even point on electricity price, what's my break-even point on Bitcoin price, and those different metrics that in day-to-day mining are, are really useful to know. But the total cost to mine, including hardware depreciation, is more of like, okay, what is the Bitcoin price at which I'm screwed if I make this investment into mining and then price goes down or price doesn't go up enough if you're analyzing maybe over a two or three year time period, then you'll see your cost of mine is going up. But as long as Bitcoin price is also going up, then it's okay. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, I'd love to keep chatting, but I want to keep the episodes um, accessible and uh, you know uh, piecemeal size. So we'll have to get you back on soon, Daniel. So let's finish up. If you've got any closing thoughts for listeners, um, maybe uh, any tips for them if they're thinking about how to assess profitability and finally of course where can people find you online and brains online sure my biggest tip is definitely start thinking about mining profitability more in bitcoin terms hopefully we'll be able to help out with that pretty soon with the next profitability calculator update and the full mining insights update although that's probably a month or two or three away hard to say but yeah, definitely start thinking in terms of Bitcoin CapEx break even, 100% HODL ratio on your revenue, not just your profit, things like that. Where to find me? I'm at dfrumps on Twitter and basically everywhere. And then also we have two Twitter accounts right now. It's kind of confusing. Brains is the umbrella company, the parent company, and then like products are Brains OS Plus, Slush Pool, Strata V2. We have a farm proxy coming out. Um, and some other different projects that we're working on. But so the Brains Twitter account is at Brains underscore systems. Um, and then the Slushpool Twitter account, which I think is the larger account by a good margin, is at underscore, at Slush underscore pool. Fantastic. Well, listeners, that'll all be there in the show notes. So make sure you follow Daniel and you check out the brains.com website. Daniel, thank you for joining me and I look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Likewise. Just a quick note before we finish up, I just got back from Prague. I was over there for a Liberty conference and actually, funnily enough, I'm going to be back there in October from the 21st to the 23rd for the event Liberty in Our Lifetime. So the theme here is Parallel Structures for Progress and it'll be on in conjunction with some of the team from Free Private Cities. So I'm looking forward to catching up and if you're interested to go there, it's going to be in Prague. The website is lifetimeliberty.com and you, you can use the code LEVERA20 to get 20% off. You can find my show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I will see you in the Citadels.